Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What's up, podcast fam? Today, my guest is Brandon Steiner. Brandon is best known for building Steiner Sports and changing the face of sports memorabilia forever. He is a marketing guru, a true, true salesman, and an absolute hustler. He's also the author of the business playbook, Leadership Lessons from the World of Sports, You Gotta Have Balls, and Living on Purpose. In this episode, we dive into Brandon's journey from his poor roots to building the largest sports marketing and memorabilia company in the world. He shared many of what he calls his nuggets of gold in life, business, and so much more. Tune into this episode and enjoy. Thanks so much. I'm happy we could finally... uh make this happen, get it going, and uh, excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's roll, man. And uh, I like this idea. I like the name of your pod. That's cool. That's why I always, oh, I always say, you. like, some of the things when I'm telling my people, like, I say, this is gold. So I like the, you know, I like the name of your, I like that. <laughs> appreciate that. Appreciate that. Well, a man that needs no real introduction, Newsday called one of the most innovative, influential figures in the history of sports memorabilia, Brandon Steiner. So excited to have you on. So before we, we roll in and get the show started, I usually like to take it back to childhood, and I'm sure this will help us get there. But I read that you invented the everything bagel. True or not it's true? It's true. And uh, going back to my childhood, I, I probably need a couch right now to go back to that because it was a roller coaster ride as a kid. As a lot of kids, you know, not everything's easy. But I look at my adversity in my childhood in a nutshell as my advantage. You know, having to go out and work at an early age. And, you know, I didn't quite have a, a normal household. But, you know, I had a great mom who took good care of me as far as giving me a lot of guidance, advice, and love. And sometimes that's just enough, you know. And, and the good Lord always just gives you what you need, not always what you want. Although it would have been nice to have the nice bicycle. It would have been nice to have a dad rolling around with. And it would have been nice to have money to eat. But sometimes, you know, you don't get all those things. But I didn't get angry about it. Uh, and I certainly haven't let my, my past story uh, dictate my future story, which is really important. Mm. A lot of people let their past stay around, you know, there's shame or there's, you know, there's, you know, it's embarrassing when you're the poorest kid in the neighborhood. And that shame sometimes gets in the way of you really feeling like you're deserving of, of a good life and, and really a, a deserving of a good future. And it's important that you realize that your circumstances sometimes are just, that's exactly what they are. You know, you're not poor. Your circumstances are. You know, I was a poor kid. My circumstances were poor. And I didn't have much clothing and food. And we lived in a really dirtbag apartment that was cockroach infested and being on welfare. Those are my circumstances. I had nothing to do with even setting that up. But I know as a, as a kid, I had a lot to offer. And I hit the streets early. You know, at 10 years old, I was on the streets working, hustling, wheeling and dealing. And uh, that makes things a lot easier for me now. You know, when I get into my adulthood, the transition of figuring out how to make money and how to find a job wasn't that hard for me. Hmm. When you were brought up, you were poor. Did it translate to 
like I, I need to go out and hustle. I need to provide for my family. And I read your, your parents divorced when you were young. Yeah, I was four. Did you feel like you had to sort of step up and be the man in the household and help provide for your mom? Well, I think, you know, it started when I was 10. I mean, I got called up to the front of the class and the teacher, Mr. Kerper, PS215, and uh, we're taking a math test and he gave me this envelope of money. He said, we took a collection uh, for you to buy some clothes. I said, how do you know I need clothes? He's like, well, you've been wearing the same pants for three weeks in a row. I said, how do you know that? Because you got a rip in the right knee. I remember to this day, 50 years ago, the pants he's talking about, these striped, almost like they were like these goldish tan pants that were really weird striped. They, God, help me, I wouldn't be caught dead in them. But I remember the pants exactly because I wore them so often and, and saw the pants I had. So I went home. My mom was like, oh, you're in between sizes. You know, of course, I was going to get you new clothes. About three hours later, I was like, that's not making sense. And, I, you know, as a kid, you don't realize how poor you are. All you know is what you know. You don't know whether you're poor or not. And it really hit me that I really didn't have what the other kids had. And that refrigerator was empty. And, and you know, I realized we were poor. And I went to my mother's room. I said, you know, something on Saturday, I'm going to go out and get a job. And I was 10. I hit the streets. And I didn't come home until I found a job. And I got a job, Freddie the Fruit Man, uh, delivering fruit and vegetables and stocking fruit and vegetables. And how that story, I hope, relates to the people that are listening is that I think everyone has to draw the line in the sand at some point. I think 10 a little early. And when I have had yeah. kids, a 10-year-old just coming down eating breakfast and being dressed is like a home run. So going out on your own with no alarm clock and going to try to find a job on a long strip highway, which was King's Highway back in Brooklyn, yeah, that's a lot to probably put on a 10-year-old. But everybody has to draw that line of accountability where they stop making excuses. They stop using their previous stories. Stop blaming other things that have happened, circumstances that they were brought into that had no control over, and use that as an excuse of why they can't go forward, why they can't do more. And mm -hmm. I think for me, I just realized that, you know, I got to take care of this. I got to be accountable. So I went into my mother's room. I told her, I said, look, you don't have to worry about me anymore. I'll work. I'll pay for my clothes. I'll pay for food. And if I have extra money, I'm happy to give it to the family, you know, to help us. And it was just a moment of time for me of being accountable and then taking control of my life, which I highly recommend that everybody do. Unfortunately, for some people, it takes a little too long. You know, and, yeah. uh, and the sooner you make that stand, I think you're on your way to maybe getting something done and accomplishing something. I like to think. So when you were 10, you sort of took that stand into your teen years. I'm assuming you had various jobs when you were hustling, making money, providing, et cetera. So it sounds like that sort of evolved going into high school and then ultimately college, were you already thinking, I'm going to start a business one day? I want to, today, entrepreneurships, it's so talked about. When you were growing up, it was definitely, I'd, I'd, I'd imagine, a little bit less talked about than it is today. I mean, entrepreneurships promoted on social media left and right. Was your mentality, I'm going to start a business or... Was your mentality just like, I need to grind right now and figure out ways to make money? Oh, no, no, no. For, my mother was a, a phenomenal entrepreneur, and I was at a very, very young age knew that I was going to own a bunch of businesses. And I had no no interest in just being just opening up an ordinary business and, and, and making some money. I never wanted to just be successful. I wanted to not only open up a business, but I wanted to do something that was disruptive. I wanted to do something that was unique. And I had that mindset at a really young age. I don't know what gave me the impression that I could actually pull that off. I don't know. But I definitely was thinking that one day, and I remember in, in high school, I, already, I was working 30 hours a week in high school, all through high school. 
and uh, you know, I worked uh, my summers. I mean, I, I put a lot of hours of work in. I supported myself, and I finally realized I was going to go to college. And, and my mother had said, you know, you're definitely going to college from the time I can remember being a little kid. And she said to me, you know, if you don't want to go to school, I would understand that. You probably have enough skills to go out into the workforce and make money. However, this is how she sold me in. If you want to run all those companies you're talking about, you may need an education. But the people that run big companies are lawyers and accountants. I said, well, I don't think I'm going to be able to be a lawyer because my writing skills were not that good, uh, nor my reading skills. And, but I think I could do the accounting thing. So immediately I took some college accounting in high school. I went to this experimental school. And that's really what drove me was the, the, why I went to college. It was also to grow up a little bit, and I wanted to experience that. But I really wanted to make sure that I had the tools that one day as I grew, I could run a, a, a real sizable business, which was the best advice my mother could have given me. And um, was really important. I remember even uh, one day I came home from school. I had a, a speech problem and I couldn't speak properly. And I talk like this and I have, you know, and, and you know, it was just terrible. And there's certain letters I couldn't pronounce. And my mother would, and my, they just make fun of me all the time. And so I went to the speech pathologist and I come home and I declare that I'm not going anymore. I'm done with that. I, that's a waste of time. I don't need to do that. And my mother's like, you're never, ever going to go anywhere speaking the way you speak. It's not going to work. You'll never be an executive. So I'm like, I'm not going to speech. I'm not doing it. So one day my mother picked me up from school. Now you have to understand, I think my mother picked me up from school maybe, well, maybe once or twice in all the years I went to school. She never came after school and picked me up. So we get in the car and we drive and then we drive maybe about 10 minutes and we pull up behind this garbage truck. And I want you, she's like, I want you to meet somebody. So we pull up behind the garbage <laughs> truck and she says, I want you to meet Joe. Joe's a sanitational engineer and Joe drives his truck. And Joe, would you explain to my son, Brandon, about the career? Because I think there's a possible good career for my son to really get into, you know, becoming one day being a garbage man and a sanitation engineer. It's a good profession. You explain about the pension. You explain about all the benefits because this is probably a good career for him. So, you know, Joe went on to explain everything that involved with working for the sanitation department. And then I went home and was like, okay, I go to speak football. You got it. <laughs> so, you know, my mother had a, definitely an awkward way of driving home those lessons to make sure that I would do the right thing because she knew that, you know, as you know, with young kids, it's tough to tell young kids what to do. So she always had a way of showing me the direction I was going to be headed if I kept doing what I was doing. So she said, Brandon, I think you should go to college. What's funny, when I went to school, I came home one day. I was like, Mom, we don't have money. Went to a pass-fail experimental school, and I got 760 on my board. It's like, she's like, and the golden nugget there is, I want you to go to your guidance counselor and find out what she thinks. And I want you to go to the book. I want you to find you know, the SAT college you know, book where I was all the different schools. Because I was yeah. looking for the school that had the most women. Man, ratio. <laughs> I was like, if it has a lot of women, not so many guys, that's going to be great for me. And my mother's like, do not pay attention to that. That's not what I'm talking about. Not those numbers. So find the most expensive school in New York that has an accounting program. So my guidance counselor told me that she didn't think I should go to college. That I should go to, uh, you know, like a, a school for electrician, for plumbing. She didn't think I had it in me to go to college. My mother went crazy. So we're looking at schools, and and I decided to apply to Syracuse. I'm like, Mom, how are we going to afford Syracuse, the most expensive school? I said, because nobody as poor as we are would have the balls to apply. Now, my mother's favorite line was, you got to have balls. And that was the name of my second book, which, by the way, all your viewers, if you go to Collectible Exchange, you can get my book for free. Any one of the three books, just go to Collectible Exchange. And uh, you'll see it there. And, and through the end of June, you get the book for free. Okay, amazing. So I go up and I go for the interview up at Syracuse and beautiful school. 
and I made a sale. My mother's like, you got to make a sale. And the golden nugget is a lot of times people get caught up with the rejection or the deference, but most situations, you only need one yes. You may date a lot of girls, but you only need one of the right, the right person to say yes. You may have 10 schools reject you, but the right school says, yes, you're a winner. I always tell people 51%, you win 51% of the time, you're a winner. You may lose 49%, but you're a winner. But with some of the big decisions, it doesn't matter. Like when I go and pitch business today, I may pitch 10 people something. If one says yes, I'm a winner. But people get caught up and they over-exaggerate. The nugget here is a lot of people put a lot more emphasis on the losing and a lot less emphasis on the winning. People over-over-exaggerate on losing and they under-exaggerate and underplay the winning. And I highly recommend the opposite. You know, people should enjoy the wins and – Learn from the losing, but, you know, it's important just to realize that you're going to lose, but doesn't mean it's going to dictate your future. So to me, it's like, I just needed one really good school to say yes. And believe me, I applied to a lot of schools, good schools after that, and I couldn't figure it out, but I did. I think it's just important to mention that, you know, you just need one big break. And to go to a great school like that was just amazing. You know, to go to a private school with really smart kids and really great programs. Like, you know, here I am, just a kid from Brooklyn. And by the way, the other nugget is when I went home and told all my friends I was going to Syracuse, they were all like, don't go. That's crazy. All those bumpkins up there. That's Hicksville. What are you going to do up there? You're going to be bored. I'm like, listen, not only am I going to Syracuse, I ain't coming back. Take a look at his face because you're not going <laughs> to see it again. I'm not going back to Brooklyn. Sometimes, you know, you got to be careful about who you listen to for advice. You know, the important thing is not to really care about what other people think, except you should care about what the people that you know, the ones that really love you, that are in your corner. You should care about what they think. But I wouldn't get too concerned about all the other peripheral people around you, what they think. And I think a lot of people put a lot of credence in what they think. Yeah, absolutely. So you make it to Syracuse. I also went to Syracuse. I have a little bit of a different journey getting there. I went there, visited, was like, this is where I'm going to go. Decided last minute to apply to another school, early decision. Then was like, I made a huge mistake, wanted to go to Syracuse, tried applying, got rejected. And then I, it took me uh, an extra two years to find my way there. But um, Oh, goodness. I wish I would have known you. I could have helped you, hopefully. But, you know, we're selling the dome right now. We're about to launch next week the dome, the roof of the dome. We're selling it in different products and everything. So that's really cool. Oh, amazing. I'm Well, I'm excited to get into that in a little bit. So when you were in college, you were studying business. Were you involved in any businesses while you were in school? Hello. Is an ice cube cold? <laughs> I mean, you know, does a dog bark? I mean, yeah, I worked full time in college, man. <laughs> I didn't go to school to go. There was no no plan. I worked full time and went to school. And I wasn't even that smart. So I had yeah. to find some smart kids to help me through. But, uh, you know, I cooked my way through school. So, you know, that bagel stuff and all that really ended up paying dividends. As I took a cooking internship at this summer camp under a great chef, Alzie Jackson, to this camp for underprivileged kids who really taught me how to cook industrially and for people and uh, of groups. So I, I worked in many kitchens throughout those four years, sold fraternity sportswear. And I did it all, man. I hustled. I threw parties, events. I mean, I, you know, I did so many entrepreneurial things, which that was another great thing about Syracuse. Is I would come up with these schemes and then I would do it. And a lot of them worked. I was like, damn, this is good. This, you know what I mean? So I, I'd come up with all these ideas. That's how I knew I could promote and market. That, you know, I think confidence is such an important element. And I think trying things, you know, I think people, when they die, one of their biggest regrets is not trying things. 
And I, I think, you know, for me, like one of the things my mother taught me with you got to have balls is like, you got to try things. doesn't mean you don't have to light up, you know, you don't have to, you know, just because you want to try a Christmas tree, you don't have to start with Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. I mean, you can start with a little tree, but you know, I, I tried lots of little things up at Syracuse, little promotions and stuff. And, you know, most of them work and it really built a lot of confidence. Uh, I saw it as a great mm. opportunity to put things in play. And then I learned a lot in school. It was very beneficial. My mother was right. Because I never would have been able to run these companies without having an accounting degree and then the personnel degree that I got. Got it. Absolutely. So after school, I read that you worked at the Hyatt Hotels for a little bit and then made your way into managing the Hard Rock Cafe in New York. Is that is that right? Yeah. And then... Then you opened up, or you opened a, one of the first like sporting clubs in in uh, the fir- the first like modern sports bar in, in the country. That was really a little bit of a claim to fame, but you know, I tell the people that are listening is that you know when you're looking for a job, like it's so important to target your dream jobs. So important to like Hyatt was a dream job. Getting to work for Hard Rock was like a lottery ticket. There were thousands of people applying. That was like the hottest place back in 1983, 84. So you know th- those jobs were very meaningful to me. Because all I wanted to do when I got out of college is work for like a Hyatt or a Marriott at the time. They were really hot, growing chains. So I think it's important for young people that are watching is like to not only dream big, but to target some of your dreams so they're not too wide and unrealistic. And, you know, and also be flexible about going after them. Like I had to go over to Baltimore, you know, for a Brooklyn kid to go to Baltimore back in the 80s. when Baltimore then wasn't what it is now. It was a really small town. It was a big adjustment. It was like a step over Syracuse, but it was it was light. And it was hard. I mean, it was hard to do to, you know, I left with 400 bucks, two suits, which those two suits were not usable for Hyatt. I mean, it was difficult to make that transition. And I, I urge kids to not be afraid to make those moves and not be afraid to do some things that maybe aren't the sexiest thing on your resume, but give you good experience with people and work experience. I tell kids now, like in this environment, you know, yeah, there's not these big internship gigs now. There's no internships. So you don't, you know, I don't talk a lot about it, but all the internships that kids are going to have this summer, they're gone. So what? Go deliver, go deliver fruit and vegetables. Go deliver, go mow glass, go mow the grass. You know, go help people with their garbage. Um, be a bus boy, you know. I mean, get your hands dirty, roll your sleeves up, figure out how to make money in this kind of environment. Go work in a warehouse. Warehouses are booming. Yeah. It's really important to be able to swivel, pivot. And not just do traditional things. And I think those experiences are meaningful. You know, working hard in this country sometimes gets downplayed. You know, the plumber, the construction person, the person who builds houses, who puts windows in, who cuts glass. Like, first of all, those people make very good money. And those jobs are meaningful. And to learn to do some of those jobs, even if it's not your end all, it may not be your destination job, but it could be your transportation job. They all are. All those opportunities are experience learning how to deal with people, learning how money gets made. And they all lead you somewhere. So I urge a lot of the kids, if they're listening, if you have a younger audience, like just because you can't get these fancy internships at some of these big companies, so what? Go to the local grocery store and pack some groceries and see what's going on. Like learn learn something. Go work with some money. Yeah. I can't believe how many kids I run into that graduate college that have never worked to make a dollar. They've done some internships, but learning how to make a dollar, one dollar is an incredibly important lesson and it's amazing how many kids wait till after they graduate college to do it learn how to make a dollar it's huge i mean just the value of a dollar how to make a dollar and i just got that education at 10 which is why i feel like invincible as far as going out in the street and how to make money because 
you know, I put 10 years into making money before I even graduated college. Mm. I think for a lot of the younger generation, high school students, college students, I know a lot of people who graduate college and they have an idea of maybe this is what they think their dream job is, but they never did it. It sounds like you got invaluable experience trying so many different things and figuring out what you like, didn't like, et cetera. I think so. I mean, a lot of times you find what you want by figuring out what you don't want. Yeah. And also serving people is such an important aspect of every business. So when you bus boy or your server or you're delivering groceries, that's serving people and learning how to serve people and take care of people and getting people what they want is a big part of any business. So a lot of times you get a little ahead of yourself. You know, you're in high school and you think, well, what's this job's going to lead me to? What's working in a warehouse going to lead me to? Then you're CEO of some company that has a warehouse and you never worked in a warehouse before. You think if you were running some big company that maybe had distribution facilities and you already put a couple summers into working in a warehouse that would help you? I don't understand what it's like to be a warehouse employee and the ups and downs of working in a warehouse and how theft works and how different things work in a warehouse is important. You're not going to go get that after college. You graduate college, you're not going to go work in a warehouse. Probably not. But those experiences, those people are critical. Yeah, absolutely. When I was running the restaurants, I spent a lot of time with the prep cooks. Why? Because I know what it was like to be a prep cook. Spent a lot of time in the dish room. No one did. Why? I know it's like to be a dish room, but I know when that dish room guys don't show up, I know who's going to be washing the dishes. Me. So I definitely took a lot of attention <laughs> to those dish room guys. But also I found tons of silverware in the garbage. You know, and all kinds of different stuff that, you know, you learn in a dish room about when food's not right and you see full plates of food coming back, something's wrong with your kitchen. And now how would I know that? I was in a dish room and I would see tons of food coming back. I said, I wonder if the kitchen even knows that this food is not working out too well. Why would somebody send back an entire order? So I knew to go in the dish room and we have relationships with the dish room people. They would come to me and say, Brandon, there's a little problem here. We're getting a lot of the burgers back or we're getting this back or that and that back. So there's always something you can learn that that could help you down the road with something else. Yeah. It's funny you, you mentioned around just getting your, your hands dirty. I mean, I, our audience does skew a little bit younger and I tell a lot of people, especially now, a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of people lost their, their internships. I think right now there's such a great opportunity to go out and hustle and uh, make a buck. There's so many people who have problems right now, et cetera. Boom. So exactly. <laughs> Young audiences take inventory. You got there's such talent right now. In the ages of 18 to 20 to 25, I mean, it's amazing what younger people know and know how to do. And especially there's so much pivoting going on in business. You just got to make sure you understand what value you bring to businesses. Value is what you can do for someone they can't do for themselves. And I think a lot of young people undersell themselves and how much they can mentor older people and how much they can help a business with social media, help a business with digital marketing. It's amazing how much they know just even instinctively without even the training more than a 35, 40, 50 year old person knows. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm 26 and I grew up with social media, but the kids that are 18 now, 19, 20, they know so much more than, than I even know around social media. It's not even a big deal to them. Yeah, <laughs> it's just second nature. So I want to talk a little bit about when you were building Steiner Sports. At what point in that business did things start to really take off where you're like, I have something here? Probably in about 90... Six, you know, I'd signed Mark Messier to his first contract. I had Phil Rizzuto on the contract and the Yankees won the World Series and things were starting to pop. I had no idea what I was doing and I'd made a lot of mistakes in doing so. A lot of back-end mistakes, you know, not really having the, gotten able to get the computer systems right. That was really early on for computers in general. The warehouse, shipping, a lot of things were coming together and then I was trying to figure out how to ship 
several hundred orders a day and things like that, and then trying to get these players to contracts, which had never been done before. But I think come 98 was the breakout year, uh, and a lot of things were happening. And what really happened, and probably where the golden nugget is on this, and what happened in 98 is that we had a great year, and we did make a lot of money. I misunderstood what we made a lot of money on and what we didn't, and my margins were too low. And when I finished what I thought was an amazing year, I ended up making very little money, and I got really upset. And I started really digging into my brand, uh, the costs, the margins, and I started really focusing on the things that were most important. I always say the most important thing always has to be the most important thing. You got to do the most important thing for the most most important people. So you do the most important thing for the most most important people, then the most important things always get done for the most important people. And it sounds very simple, but it's amazing how many people spend time that work on companies on the worst employees, the customers that don't pay, or, you know, you spend so much time on friends that aren't even good friends, but they drag you down. And then you end up not spending a lot of time on your better friends and you don't spend enough time on your better customers and that sort of thing. So in 98, when I had made a lot of money, I had a little bit of an uphill, uh, an uprising in my company. And I guess my employees thought I made a lot more money than I did. And almost half of them left. And uh, I just decided that I was just going to do everything. I was just going to get this thing right. And and I just got on a tear. I couldn't even tell you one thing that happened in 99 other than me just (laughs) waking up as early as I could and staying at work till my eyes were closing. And in 99, we had a phenomenal year. The Yankees happened to win another World Series. And I put that company on its feet the right way. And we were then on our way. You know, I remember doing an article for the New York Times I think it was like 90, 1994 or 93. And I said that, you know, my goal is in the next three or four years to do um, $5 million in sales. And my wife's like, you haven't even done a million. I said, yeah, but that's my forecast. My wife's like, based on what? I said, based on what I think I can make happen. And uh, sure enough, in 99, we had done 5 million in sales and that, then things were popping. And basically in 2000, I sold to Omnicom, which was the beginning of really Steiner Sports, because they put a bunch of money behind me to go build what I wanted to ultimately go build with an inventory system, a much bigger 45,000 square foot warehouse and everything else. So just going back backwards just for a second, you mentioned the year when when uh, when you thought things were going great, but you you really weren't making much money. What What were the things specifically that you were focusing on then um, that that it wasn't really producing, I guess, net profits at the end of the year. I was focused on selling. You know, I was just trying to sell anything and everything I could and trying to build a customer base. And I was just trying to, I wasn't paying attention enough to what, how I was coming up with my pricing. You know, I mean, pricing is such an important element of business. And I think a lot of times people, I go into restaurants a lot. I'm like, who came up with the pricing of this? And I think that pricing is, is there's an art to it and it takes a lot of work. Now with analytics, and your ability to really get into the, the, the nitty gritty of what things cost. There's no reason to be wrong on your pricing, but I think I misunderstood about what it cost me to run my business at that time. I really didn't have a good handle on it. And I didn't have a great handle on the kind of margin I needed and could make. And I hadn't thought about not only what I was charging, but was I even charging enough? So when I added all that up, you know, the beans, and I, I probably need to spend more time in my accounting department at that time. I was just so busy trying to sell talking people into taking my product. I hadn't really paid enough attention to what I was selling it for. Hmm. Makes, yeah. makes sense. So I read one, one part of your story that I absolutely loved. 
um, is, you know, I read that basically when, when Yankee stadium came down, you essentially, you know, became, took, took it over. And um, I, I loved reading how you ended up selling the, the dirt, the grass uh, you mentioned, you know, you're taking the, the dome and you're going to start selling that. Um, I mean, it's, it's one thing that I really loved about that is it made me think um, how you created this experience or value to something that as simple as dirt or grass, you created this additional value aspect to it, this experience where, um, you know, it wasn't just dirt that people were buying. And um, like, how, how do you come up with that idea? Even um, I know I, I watched a video where you, you developed the, the case where you'd put the baseball, where you'd put the, the football, the basketball, etc. The Syracuse TED Talk. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, yeah. I, I gotta I be honest that. with so, you. I, you know, I, I think I was just talking to somebody about this, but like when your back's against the wall, which I always try to put myself in that position as an underdog. I always feel like nobody's gonna believe me. Nobody's behind me. Nobody thinks I could do it. But when you're an underdog, you know, there's a lot of excitement. Like right now, we're all underdogs in this environment with the virus and all this stuff that's going on in the country. Like we're all underdogs. Like it's an exciting time. I'm not saying that everything that's going on is, is a good thing, but sometimes, you know, your back against the wall is not always a good thing, but it's exciting. Everything else seems somewhat trivial. I mean, you know, is this economy coming back? Am I going to get my job again? I mean, it's exciting. I mean, it's nerve wracking. It's exciting. So for me, a lot of these ideas come, whether it be, you know, my first job when I was 10, my back was against the wall. I'm like, do you want to eat? Do you want to wear normal clothes like everyone else does? Or are you going to be a poor slump? My back was against the wall, man. I had to go do something. And, like, that's what I felt like with the dirt. I was like, man, I got to do something. Um, I, I need to come up with some lower-end products. And, man, I would love to get some dirt. I always try to put myself – and there's another thing that I really highly recommend. It's one of my favorite tricks in, in building my businesses, which is I always try to put myself in the customer's shoes. So I call a customer up. I go, where are you right now? Always notorious for my first question when I call somebody. Where are you right now? And what's going on? Because I want to picture you. You're behind the desk. If you got 10 feet of 10 people in front of you, what kind of pressure you're under? Because I want to be the customer. And it will be that much easier for me to explain what I'm trying to do for you from your view as opposed to mine by understanding where mm -hmm. you're at. And that's one of my favorite things. So I spent a lot of time at Yankee Stadium. I'm very grateful the Yankees were able to partner up with me and do this. So I, I'm like, what is it? What will be like to sit out in the bleachers? Like, what does that bleacher creature want? What does that guy up in the third deck want? What does that woman want who's sitting by third base with her husband that's not going to gross out our house, but have something for it? So I'm just trying to think like the different things. And that's why I came up with 100,000 different items for breaking down the stadium. You know, Reggie Jackson calls me up. He's like, let's take out the black and cut it up and I'll sign it in white marker. We made $300,000 selling the black, which was concrete. Painted black. It was crazy. You know, we sold the grass. You know, we probably sold a million dollars of grass legally by just lifting the grass and then freeze drying it and, you know, selling that for $129, which was crazy. Yeah. I read the the dirt. You sold over $50 million of the dirt. Yeah. I've sold a lot of dirt over time. And, and you know, the dirt is a fascinating story because, you know, and it really did become a thing dirt pens and coasters and keychains. And, but, what was great is when I came up with the dirt maps, I was able to, you know, that was like $30, $40 sales. And I was like, man, it's going to be a long road to sell enough of this stuff. And it was selling. But then I figured out how to sell a $500 poster that had a little capsule of dirt from every ballpark with a picture of each ballpark on the poster. And I was getting 500 yeah, bucks for selling dirt on a poster. 
Like that gets me in the Sales Hall of Fame. And people are loving that. People love the that. And I always send them with a little note. Now you got a little dirt in your office. Now you got a little dirt on every team in your office, rather. You know, from all you fantasy baseball geeks. Like, you know, now you have a little dirt on every team in your office. You get the baseball map. It's cool. When you started selling that and it really started to move, were you were you surprised or you knew it was gonna sell? I think it's like people say, Do you ever think Steiner was gonna be successful? Do you ever think collectible exchange, my new company is gonna be successful? Yeah. I thought it was gonna. I, when I get into something, I'm completely in. I mean, I think it's yeah. like the next, you know. So I, yeah, I get completely into something now. The real question is: Is every time you've gotten into something like this, has it worked? No. I mean, you know, I've had, I've had yeah. that door hit my butt on the way out with some bad losses. You know, I mean, you know, it's nothing like a bad loss, but which I talk a lot about in my third book. I definitely articulated all my stupid mistakes and losses, but. I was very convicted about the dirt. It seemed to be going very well. And I knew about, I, listen, I didn't know a whole lot about dirt, but I knew about Yankee Stadium dirt. I mean, you know, Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, Mantle, all of them leaning over to grab a little dirt and putting it in there. Like, I knew that was just something special. I knew some of the greats had walked on that dirt. Something about that dirt that, you know, I knew it was cool. Because <laughs> as soon as I got on that field, I wanted a little dirt. And then the next thing I wanted was a base. You know, but I just remember thinking about putting uh, the the relationships I was doing with all the teams. I had done one with the Red Sox and the Cubs and the Yankees. And I remember, like, I want a base. I want that lineup card, man, to remember this game. I always kept score as a kid. You know, I want one of those game-used balls. How about the kids that can't get a foul ball? Maybe they could buy one in the gift shop was my view. I know what it was like to be that kid in the stands who just wanted anything. Anything, you know, yeah. a wristband, uh, anything, like, would be amazing. So I wanted to supply those kids with that dream. I love that. On the golden nugget and all this, and it's like, you know, find out who your ultimate customer is and don't lose that mindset. Like my ultimate customer, honestly, you know, when I think about collectibles is really a 10, 11 year old. And I really learned that when my kid was 10 or 11, I really hung out with him and his friends. And I saw the real view, which was so innocent, so incredible. But what an 11 year old thinks. And I really try to keep an 11 year old mindset. And when I don't, I go try to find some 11 year olds in the neighborhood and kind of hang out with them a little bit, which sounds kind of weird. Their permission, of course, but it's so like so. I tell people out there when you start a business, realize who your customer is, which is one hundred and one, and then understand the mindset of that customer, and make sure you can really maintain the mindset of your customer, of your real customer, not just your mindset, because your mindset will change and it will vary. But when you get into the ultimate customer of yours, when you and you know who they are, you know what they're thinking. If you don't have that mindset and keep in touch with that level of whether it's a six-year-old woman. 50 year old man or a 10 year old kid. I knew that my customer was an 11 year old kid. That 11 year old, by the way, may be in a grown up's body, but when a 50 year old <laughs> man is buying a, a signed baseball, he's thinking like an 11 year old. Yeah. You got you to remember that. <laughs> I want to touch upon, you know, you had mentioned when your back's up against the wall. I think now it's, it's an interesting time. Obviously, the world's crazy right now with everything going on, especially with the coronavirus. I was telling a friend the other day that. There's no, this is at least my mentality or perspective right now. Now is like the absolute best time to, if you ever thought like, I want to take a risk, I want to take a jump. Now is such a good time because in my eyes, there's no, people are just sitting at home. There's no way you could possibly lose right now. You could try something and you're still sitting at home in the same position. So now is like a great, a great opportunity to take a leap, take a jump, see what you can make happen. Well, if you need a virus to get you thinking like that, that's fine. I, I think you should have that mindset all the time, frankly. I mean, if you need a virus to get you your, your engine going, great, so be it. But listen, at the end of the day, we're built for this. 
And that's the most important thing. We're built for adversity. We're built to be, to have amazing amounts of pressure put on us, to be put under adversity. You know, every other species on the, on the, in the planet, and there are thousands of them, from ants to rats to bugs to elephants to lions, tigers, bears, everything. None of them, zero, can adjust to pressure, to this kind of adversity. You throw mm. a deer in an ice-cold lake, and it's going to die. You put a human being in an ice-cold lake, we adjust to that weather, and we can work through it. We can adjust to these kind of things. That's what makes it so special to be a human being. And you got to remember why you're here, my friend. We're here to deal with you. Life is not just a straight line, an easy street. All right. You're never going to wake up. Your dog's going to fed itself, walk itself, <laughs> read the newspaper in the corner. Right. Your yeah. goldfish is going to be doing backflips and breaststrokes in a tank one day because it's taught itself how to do that. An elephant's going to eat 17 hours a day, my friend. Okay. Poop and have some sex. And that elephant's been around for thousands <laughs> of years. We can. Our backs against the wall is what we're built for because humans can adjust. We can deal with the pressure. We can deal with the adversity and rise above it. Not because I think so, because we have. And I know so. Yeah. Question is, do you want to go to your grave watching different times in, the, in your lifetime, watching it? Or do you want to go to your grave knowing you did something about it and you want to be part of a solution? But generally, I, I don't need a virus to start my engine. Like That's how I think about it every day. I think everything I get involved with could be better, could be done better, could be done smarter. And my job mm. of being a human being on this planet is to do better and be better. Yeah. Because I've been given that gift Absolutely. to do so. Otherwise, we think about <laughs> all the things that are born into this world that doesn't have the ability that we got. So if you're sitting home doing yeah. nothing, I mean, boy, you are really wasting <laughs> just an amazing opportunity. It's like having a winning lottery ticket that you know is a winner and you're not going to scratch it off. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure that will motivate some people. So after you, you sold your company to Omnicon, I read that you were left feeling emotionally bankrupt after selling your company. And I wanted to sort of discuss how your relationship with, with time, your perspective on time changed from earlier years in your career to the later years, more to where you are you know, now how your perspective with, with time has, has evolved and also why you would express that you were feeling that way previously. Well, I think the message there is, and, and everybody kind of goes to that, especially now since we're all living a lot older, you know, you find yourself doing something for 20, 30 years, you can get a little bit burnt out. And what I say is, you know, if you're a young person, you probably spent your whole life thinking about maybe doing something in high school and maybe going to a good college. And that was your goal. And then you go to college, you're thinking every minute of every day, what you're going to do when you get out of college. What I think or try to communicate in the Living on Purpose book is like, listen, don't play small. My question to you is, then what are you going to do with that gift that you've gotten, which is to be successful and to be, do what you've done in your career well? The real gift is now what are you going to do to help others? What are you going to do to make this world better than when you found it? And I think a lot of people, when they hit the 45, 50, they struggle because they're a little bit burnt out on what they do their health or their relationship with their family or their fitness or their faith is, is a little low because you put so much energy and time into your career. And I think it's worth it to put a lot of energy and time in your career. If it's a lot of money you wanted, whatever it is, it's cool. But I think it's also important to plan for what you want to do with that money. That's not capitalistic. And, and, the, and the joy you could receive from helping others needs to be part of your day-to-day -day diet. And I think sometimes people mm. get so caught up in their family, which is good, and certainly in their fortune, which is good. You know, if your faith, if faith was a bank account, how much would you have in your account? 
If your fitness was a bank account, how much would you have in the bank account based on your fitness? If your bank account was based on your friendships and relationships, what does that account look like? But if I ask people, and most people don't know, they don't know the answer to that. But if I ask how much is in your bank account, they tell you exactly to the penny. And the thing is that success is certainly how much money you have in your bank, but it's also those other three things. You know, your relationship with God, your relationship with your family and friends, your, how your relationship with your own body. These are just as critical as success as anything. And the question is, you should have a bank account for all those pillars. And most people have a bank account for one. And they look at their self-worth yeah. based on their net worth. And you got to look at your self-worth based on your fitness, your family, your relationships, your friends. That's your self-worth, not based on your net worth. Absolutely. So I read some blog posts of yours where you had mentioned that you would wish you you would have made it home for dinner more often and things of that nature. People obviously know your story. You had tremendous success. Do you think you could have achieved the same level of success with more balance in your life? Or you think it sort of needs to skew one in one lane for some time? By the way, I don't believe in work-life balance. I just want to mention that. Like, I just believe we respect life balance. You know, respect life. Don't ignore it. Like, you can't, I mean, people just blatantly ignore those other pillars. But the answer is yes. I mean, if you're in better shape, I mean, I can't see what kind of shape you're in, but think about it this way. If you were eating great, you were in great shape, and your girlfriend or your wife or your husband, you, you're in great shape in your most important relationship, you don't think you'd do better at work? <laughs> you don't think you'd have more energy and more clarity, you know, knowing that you're going home and your family is just, is great and your your body feels great? I mean, I think about eight or 10 years when probably I'm a step away from having a heart attack. When I look back at pictures, I mean, God knows what kind of shape I was in as far as family and friends and everything else. I mean, it's embarrassing. So I think that when I think about how much more I do in a day, feeling better, getting home for dinner, it's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, your, your perspective on, on time. I read one blog post where you sort of mentioned how, between zero to 21, ages zero to 21, when you're not born to like 21, you are, a lot of your decisions are sort of made for you. And from 75 up, it becomes harder to, to really, you know, pursue maybe some of the things that you want to pursue. I'm curious if you always had this, this concept or relative, uh, relative to time, if you were always thinking growing up, like, shit, my time on earth is limited, etc. Or is that something you sort of developed over the years now looking back? No, I, I, I was a kid. I was like, man, I got a lot out of this year. I was like, I got to use every minute of every day. I slammed every day. And I, I remember like having these conversations when I was like 15 and 18. I'm like, all right, I still got plenty of run ahead of me. I know I got a lot of years, but I got to get going. And I'd always just try to use that as like internal motivation of like, hey, Grant, I got to get going, man. You know, now I'm 50. Oh, man, I got to get going. I'm getting into the second half of this. You know, I'm, I'm 60, man. I'm in the third period of a hockey game. I got to get going. And I always you know, use that because you can't take time for granted. You know, you can't. You don't know how much of it you have. But one thing you know is you don't, there is a limit. We all, we're all going to die. So, you know, I want to make sure I get as much as I can in. I want to make sure that I'm not completely getting overwhelmed by time because sometimes you, you're kind of trying to do too much. And I think I've gone through some periods of that. But I think that, you know, time is really important to be respectful of it and other people's time as well. I t remember telling my son, I'm like, I went to go see him. He's in Seattle. I'm like, listen, just so you know, I mean, I'm 60. I'm probably going to see, you know, I'm probably going to live to 85. And I've been seeing you like three times a year. So that's 25 times three and figure maybe you come home a few more times. I said, 
more than likely, I'm probably going to see you 100 times before I die. And after tonight, it's going to be 99. I said, that doesn't feel good. I'd like to see you more than 99 times before I die. And you see my kid's face was mm. just, and, you know, he came home three months later. <laughs> How's he going to make a sale? You know, and I, it's enough, man. You need to come home. You've been on the road for nine years. Time to come home, son. So he did. That was good. That was a good pitch. That was a good sales pitch. I don't know where I came up with that, but it was a good pitch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is important, I think, to think of your time like that because it's absolutely true, and people don't think about it that way. I don't know how much you know about my story, but I'm 26. I lost both my parents to rare cancers by 25. Sorry to hear that. Jeez, that's got to be tough. Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. But, you know, people view time as, oh, I mean, you know, you, you had just mentioned, but I'm 60 years old. People think you're going to be here forever, and just not, that's not the case. You never know what tomorrow may bring. It's true. And, you know, just be respectful, you know, work-life balance. Like, you're on a roll at work, be on a roll. But if you're on a roll for 10 years, that that's excessive. You know, you get on a two, three-month or a year or two run where you have an opportunity of a lifetime to make a difference in your career or make a difference to what you're trying to do and impact. I'm for it. I mean, I, I, I like the money grab, too. I mean, you know, you got an opportunity to make the most amount of money you've ever made, and you're going to have to burn a couple of years. It may be worth it to you. When that, those couple of years turn to five, 10, 20 years, that you got to start really thinking about the repercussions of that. Because that could be mm. damaging. That could be really depressing yeah. down the road. Absolutely. So we can start to uh, wrap this up. I usually like to finish this with a few uh, with a few last questions. So one question is that a lot of our fans were curious about. What can you do with baseball cards today? I mean, even myself. I have a whole box. I have a closet filled with baseball cards. And what do, what do you do with baseball cards today? Well, it depends. You know, unfortunately, the card market, you know, after the mid-80s really went really south. If your cards are pre-1985, call me because there's some good value in those. We got to get them graded, and I'll give you some different ideas for that. If you've got cards post-85, you got to start looking them up, and you got to find some of the diamonds in the rough because most of them aren't worth much. Although there are some cards worth it. But when you get into the cards from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, those are just a lot more valuable because a lot less people were collecting. So if your cards are post-1985, you probably don't have much. And what I would do is go through the cards, find the biggest name players. You can look them up online, or you can definitely call me, and I'll give you some ideas. And then the other cards are you know, probably going to be worthless, stay worthless, because there's such an excessive amount of those that were printed, which is the problem. And you could go by the old rule of thumb and just let them stay there for another 20, 30 years and see how the market changes because you never know. Maybe everybody's following my advice that I just said and throws it out. And now your overproduced cards become rare, which we've seen that happen. Look at the record album business. You know, My wife was like, throw your albums out, throw your albums out. I still have my five, 600 albums. And I wanted to invest $2 million in albums uh, 20 years ago. And just clear out about as many albums around the country, which 20 years ago would have bought me probably about a million or two million albums. And people were just dumping them. And now look at the market now, you know, which was a worthless item 10 years ago. Now people are getting five and 10 times the amount for their albums. So, you know, markets do change. Maybe that Sony Walkman I had one day were probably worth a lot of money. <laughs> so if we could fast forward and, I mean, there were a lot of, nuggets of gold, as you say, a lot of bits of gold in this podcast. If we could fast forward, you're on your deathbed and you can impart some wisdom to the younger generation, future kids. What would be the advice that, that you would give them? How much time do we have? 
<laughs> I'm gonna like take care of your teeth, take care of your feet. Be surprised, you know. I know those two things don't come into order, but let me tell you that will cause you more aggravation with your health. And those are the two things you can control and take care of and avoid problems later on. It's unbelievable how many adults have problems with their teeth. I have a lot of friends that are dentists and problems with their feet. Eat great because, you know, get in the habit of eating great as early as you can because it just ends up being a problem later on. So it's so important to eat well and learn how to not worry about your weight, worry about your health. You know, don't worry about losing weight or gaining weight. Worry about gaining health. My new nickname is Benjamin Buttons. I'm like, I'm reversing the track of time. I'm feeling younger. That's the goal. You want to go try to be younger tomorrow. And if you don't eat well and get the right amount of rest and exercise, you're just getting older. You're going the wrong direction. And I think the last thing I would say is, you know, give a shit. You know, care about the most important people and take care of and do the right thing for the most important people. You know, care. You know, don't be afraid to step out of out of line and you know disrupt things, and don't be afraid to speak, speak your mind, speak your truth, and have some balls. You know, if you're not happy, awesome. speak up and do something about it. You know, I always close with this note: is like it doesn't really matter where you are. What matters is what you want to accept. So wherever you are, is you have a choice. You can accept it where you're at, whatever it is. Poor virus, poor woes me. Horrible, you lost both your parents. I mean, I'm sure you know, whatever you want to accept, but what are you going to do about it? What would you want your parents to do? What, what, do you, what would you want your parents, if they were alive, to tell you? What would they be telling you? And how would you be responding to that? Like, I always think about what my mother would be telling me and how she'd want me to respond. If making your parents proud and making your mom proud, which is, I think, something we all want to do, matters. So think about who's most important. And, you know, take care of what's most important because it's easy in this world today to get distracted. Really oh, very easy. <laughs> yeah, very easy. Awesome. Where, where can people uh, find you, follow you? Where can they get, get, uh, get in touch with you? Well, the free book, go to collectibleexchange.com or cxstuff.com. You got to follow me on LinkedIn, but I'm a big LinkedIn. So go to, my, go to LinkedIn and just follow me. Um, because I do answer all that and I put a lot of good stuff on LinkedIn. You go to brandonsteiner.com, you get the free 22 laws of negotiating for entrepreneurs. It's a great gift and sign up for my blog. Those, you know, those, those are good places. You know, I have my Facebook. I'm pretty active on Facebook too. You can follow me there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brandon, for, for the hour. This was great. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Good luck with everything, my friend. Keep the nugget flowing. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Bits of Gold Podcast. If you liked that episode, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To follow along for all the cool and exciting updates, make sure to follow us at Bits of Gold underscore podcast on Instagram. Thanks again for tuning in and more to come next week. Have an awesome week, guys. I love your podcast. Bits of Gold is where it's at. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.